Well, if pop music was a university, you're about to meet the Dean. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. extraordinary music of my guest today on the program, Mike Viola. Let me tell you a little bit about Mike Viola. Ever since I picked up the Candy Butcher's Live at the Bon Bonnier EP in 1996, I've been marveling at Mike Viola for what I guess now is the better part of 25 years. The Massachusetts-born singer-songwriter's musical career began when he was just a teenager, playing in a hard rock band that garnered some pretty serious regional attention. His solo career started with an EP in 1985, and since then, he's put out nearly 25 albums of some of the most perfect pop music you'll ever hear. I'll get to that in a second, but before I do, here's a quick run-through of his CV, and I gotta warn you, it's an embarrassment of riches. He's produced for everyone from Ryan Adams to Fall Out Boy, he's recorded with Shania Twain, The Monkees, Jenny Lewis, and Rachel Yamagata, And he's written tracks for and with Matt Nathanson, Mandy Moore, and John Wesley Harding. Along with his buddy Adam Schlesinger of Fountains of Wayne, Viola wrote and co-produced the Oscar-nominated title track for the 1996 Tom Hanks film, That Thing You Do. Viola also wrote music for the films Walk Hard and Get Him to the Greek, and he's currently the vice president of A&R over at Verve Records. Viola's new album, God Muffin, is a thing of wonder. Filled with songwriting finesse and masterclass pop phrasing, it might very well be his best effort yet. From reflective tracks like Ordinary Girl to the aching grind of Creeper to the bluesy pop ripple of Drug Rug, on God Muffin, Viola has proven once again that he's a practically peerless songwriter who knows how to land a hook better than anyone I can think of. Putting it simply, this is the album we needed in 2020 to remind us that there are still good things in this world. Actually, scratch that. It's the album we needed in 2020 to remind us that there are still great things in this world. And this is a great conversation with a great guy. Me and Mike Viola having a chat right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast.
honest with you, like Sunday on the bed, on the edge of the bed, fucking clutching my head. By the end of Sunday, you know, I'm six verses into a new song that I'm excited about. By, you know, by late night, Sunday night, I'm in my socks dancing like Tom Cruise in uh, Risky Business, like literally like in my living room dancing to like Christmas songs way too early because we're just, we're psychotic over here. Yeah. My family's psychotic. That's, that's, so it, it's, um, it's, it's really up and down, man. Um, that's, that's just the truth, you know? Well, I was thinking about Ordinary Girl. I was thinking about the idea of like, oh, the challenge of being a parent and encouraging your, your kids to, to be themselves, be original, do what they have to do. Um, and not and not respond to what society thinks they should do, and yes. that's challenging enough as a parent to to sort of um, spread that message. The real challenge now, though, during a pandemic, is like, how do you parent during a pandemic? Has that been a new set of challenges for you? Yeah, it really has. It really has because we, you know, um, we um, my wife works full time, so she's on Zoom full time. Um, you know, I'm an artist, I'm a musician, I'm a producer, I'm a writer, and I'm also an A&R guy. That's a, I call it my Clark Kent job. And, um, uh, I mean, it's kind of a lame description cause that's to suggest I'm Superman, but you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> it's like my, it's my secret life or whatever. Um, and, um, uh, my secret life of security. And so anyway, so I have to jump on meeting sometimes not as intense as is audrey though she's on because she works at apple like i said and she she's like it's just like full time you know um so it's hard because the kids are on they're 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 in school on zoom and then they they want to hang out with their friends and the only way they can do that is through the internet so whether it's like a game that they're on together or facetiming or just group chats so it's parenting's really difficult man because you know um, you just want to tell them, get the, get off, get off the computer. Like, but that's, it's kind of mean, you know, so you have to, you have to, uh, tread lightly, stay on your toes and stay as engaged as you possibly can. And then somehow find time for, for your significant other. Um, but you know, like I, like I told Audrey, it's like, cause when she was, when she's feeling really tense about like, just I've no time. I'm like, you know, it's, like you're sitting on the air, you know, on the airplane, you're reading the, the emergency instructions, like that oxygen max mass drops. Like you've got to put it on yourself first before you can help your kids. Like you really got to take care of yourself. Otherwise you're going to run out of fuel and you, you're going to take your kid down with you. So that's kind of where we're at. It's, it's difficult. Um, I see, you know, now that the election has turned our way, personally speaking, yeah. um, you know, I, I see, I see hope. We, we're feeling more hopeful. Suddenly, even though, you know, the, the virus is worse and more people are getting it, more people are dying, it, it doesn't feel like any second now there's going to be some, like, drifter walking into my front yard and I'm going to be like, hey, and he's not going to answer me and then he's going to come at me and he's going to be a fucking zombie. You know what right. I mean? Right. It really felt like the zombie apocalypse for a while there. It doesn't feel like that so much. I feel that way too, because I feel like the, the, the controls of the plane have been handed to somebody who knows how to fly the damn thing. That's right. That's, that's a really good analogy. Yeah, I'm with that. 
Um, so, so that it does, I mean, I was in Berkeley when they announced the election results and the, the sense of relief that was, that was just sort of like, you know, flooding the streets was palpable. So good. It felt yeah. so good. I haven't felt that way in a long time. So <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I think a lot of people have been sort of walking around very tense for a myriad of reasons, but with everything that you described, where does creativity fit in? Because you're, you're a pretty prolific songwriter. Um, has the last year or so made you more prolific or, or less? Um, it's made me more prolific in, um, but not because like I'm writing about, um, <clears throat> you know, the, everything going on in the world. Um, I have friends that are topical writers and friends that really, and they, a lot of their songs hinge on what's happening um, in a folk, in a folk artist way. And they're really good at that. I've, that's never been my thing. So my thing really is creating, I'm very abstract. I find my way into my material in an abstract way. So for me, the portal to abstraction starts with survival in a way, like I'm feeling like shit. I got to get out of this. Ah, um, and I can find a portal into a place where uh, I feel safe, you know, and I can create something that makes me feel safe. And going back to that oxygen mask, like, you know, if I feel okay, my family will feel okay. And that will reverberate outward. So all that is to say, you know, my art and my creativity is, it's very personal and people are like, wow, you're so personal. And it's like, it's not really a choice. It's just sort of, it's, um, it's survival, you know, and that's kind of how I do it. So um, you know, this year in particular, I lost a close friend to, to COVID. And when he got sick, um, you know, it, um, it was, it was devastating. Kind of, it kind of shut me down for a little bit. And while he was unconscious in the hospital and I was getting reports from his, his, basically his best friend, well, his best friend in, in New York and, um, and it, it, I kind of snapped out of my, my, um, uh, just kind of the, I wouldn't call it a depression or anything. It was more like just grieving for something. Uh, I don't know. It's kind of hard. I'm not sure how to describe it really, but I snapped out of it and realized like, well, you know, my friend Adam was sick and I was like, well, he can't play music right now. He can't do anything. Um, and I don't really know how he's doing or what he's going through, but I know that I'm just sitting here feeling sad and sorry for myself and because of how sad I feel about my friend um, in the, in the people that love him and God damn it. I hope he doesn't die. And I, I was just so sad. And I was like, you know, I, I get, I'm going to make music because and I'm going to, I kind of forced myself to do it, you know? And then once I started going, um, it was very fluid and hopeful. So that that's like that's how i you know i find creativity helps me in moments like that um which might account for the fact that you know i haven't been very popular in my in my um with my music because maybe it's just maybe because i don't I, I don't have my hustle on you know and i've never really had my hustle on <laughs> that's okay <laughs> i don't care no i mean were you, are you it's interesting you say that because i'm 
I'm a writer and, and when, when something happens, the first place I go is to the writing. Whether yeah. it's like, you know, yeah. from when I was a kid, like the girl doesn't love me, I'm gonna go write. This thing is happening, I'm gonna go write. And so like you're talking about, you know, up to, you know, obviously Adam, Adam was sick and so you, you went to go write. Yeah. Um, it's like, it's the safest place to, to go, right? Like it, yeah. it feels the most familiar. It does. And the more I, you know, the, uh, I live out here in California. I'm from Boston. I'm from New, I spent a long time in New York. So I have that East coast kind of coldness in a way. Um, uh, or, um, you know, just rooted in kind of like, there's no woo woo. I didn't grow up with any kind of woo woo or any kind of like non Western medicine or, any kind of that in my in growing up and out here, I'm just so open to all the mysticism out here, especially in my middle age. I'm like, Oh sure. I'll try that acupuncture where you like put needles in my body and then talk to the needles. Sure. I'll try that. What's it called? Oh yeah. That sounds great. <clears throat> talk to my liver. I, it needs it, you know? So, um, <laughs> but, um, in in the you know discovery process or the searching out here on the west coast i've learned about like how important our voice is like singing in the resonance of our voice and and i never really thought of singing that way which is kind of bizarre I, i've been singing my whole life but when i sing it this resonance happens and i know this sounds very very california but whatever i don't, I don't give a shit but it's like you know this resonance happening happens in um I just, I feel better, man. I don't know what to say. It's like people have people, some people jog, some people play sports or have hobbies. My thing is just <sighs> taking deep breaths and singing. <laughs> yeah. But isn't it true that you were, you've always done that, but like, but now you, you can identify what it actually is doing therapeutically. That's so true. Yes, that's exactly right. I've been doing it my whole life. And when I don't do it, I'm miserable, you know, and, uh, I kind of turn into Scrooge a little bit, you know, I get, um, I just get really kind of, I just turn inward in a dark, uh, I mean, I mean, in a selfish way, to be honest with you. Um, and I kind of get angry and close and I, and close minded. But when I'm singing, when I'm singing, you know, I turn more towards what's coming next, not what happened. And, you know, it's funny, man, because I, in my songs, I, um, I, I reach back a lot to, because there's a lot to discover back there. And, you know, my, my publicist, to his credit, he, Josh at Fanatic, he, he nailed it. He was like, Mike doesn't, Mike isn't nostalgic. Cause I, I'm not like, I don't look back like those were the days, you know, <laughs> it's more like I look back just to see like, what? you know, just to kind of poke around, you know, like look into your sock drawer. That's all. It's just like that. And there's a lot to find. And to his credit, he was like, you know, these songs are more time travel than they are nostalgia. And once, and he really, it kind of helped me, you know, it really did help me, not kind of, it helped me. It kind of lifted me up and was like, yeah, that really is what it feels like for me. I'm time traveling. And um, um, I, I, I kind of trip out on this whole notion of time in my daughter who's 15 and super hyper um, academic and I'm so proud of her, but she's, she really asks deep questions and like searches deep for answers and she's amazing. But 
we talked about, you know, how time is just so, such a construct, and we're talking about that. And I have this lyric in a song called Snowface, which is off the American Egypt. And in the song, I talk about how, like, time being a stack of glass plates, you know, that, like, in, in the lyric, the original kind of, like, scrawl that before I made it into a song, it was like a stack of dirty dishes like that are made they're glass plates but they're dirty dishes it's all the muck of all these meals and experiences and um and you can see through you know if you if you look down on the glass plates and it's all just happening at once and it's not that i find comfort in that per se i just find like oh yeah of course i find reassurance like yeah that's the way it is yeah it's all it's all right now you know and when my mom was on her deathbed you know it was sad, of course, but it was also really beautiful and enlightening. And she said some unbelievable things to me, like whispered, these morphine whispers, you know, like things that were like, what did you just say, Ma? And she was like, she's like, I just turned 15. And, you know, she was 74 when she, or 73 or something when she died. And I was like, you what? She's like, I just turned 15. I feel like I just turned 15. And I was like, wow. And we're watching Bonanza reruns on mute, you know, and we're both flying on morphine because I was dipping into the morphine because that's kind of how I did it. And she was saying all this real deep stuff that just made so much sense about how it's all happening just right now, you know. Well, we tend to, by the way, Morphine Whispers is a good name for something. <laughs> An album or a song, it's really good. You can take that one. You can take that one. I know you're a poet, so you can take that one. <laughs> it's really good. Uh, I, I know what you mean. And I've, I've had losses myself in that way. And it's very sad. But it, it's, it's paralyzingly sad. But it also, I know what you're saying. Like, there's this really interesting idea of, because you and I are the same age, and I... I've been trying to not be nostalgic on purpose because I think I've been too nostalgic in my life. And I'm, I'm not trying to smash the rear view mirror, but I'm not, I'm trying not to, to make sure I don't live in that, in that past because it really is a dangerous place to dwell. Um, it's a, it's a really good place to poke around, but not a good place to take residence. I think you're totally right about that. It's like you buy a new pair of socks, you know what I mean? You can save you all that, that drawer of left, you know, left socks or whatever like you can you, you buy, buy a new pair of socks walk forward like and um i think you're totally right about that and, and it, it helps having kids it helps keep you young if you don't you ha just have to be careful because i i've seen i've you know i know people that got really cold and 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 hard when they became parents because being a parent is very difficult. Um, but if you can find, if you can throw yourself into the chaos of both parenting and getting old and dying and babies coming along, just throw yourself into the chaos of it and stop worrying about which direction you're facing. I think you're going to be, I think you're going to be a little bit better off. At least, at least, you know, I, I feel that way. You mean cold in the sense that they became like, uh, like a drill sergeant. They felt they had to be that kind of parent. Yeah, but also that kind of friend and that kind yeah. of person that, you know, uh, is suddenly uh, stop reading, uh, uh, they stop having sex, uh, you know, uh, they stop buying 
something nice for themselves. You know, they stopped, they just stopped feeling like they're alive, you know, be out of, out of security. And I know that feeling cause I gravitate towards that. Like when, especially at the end of the month when like, you know, uh, this year, it's funny, 20 at the top of 2020, I'm so terrible with money, you know, and at the top of 2020, I was like, 2020 rhymes with money. This is going to be my year. I, like, I, I, I'm like the guy that like balances his checkbook. I've never done that in my life. Every month I'm in the red <laughs> every month, every month. And then it goes, then I, then it's like, okay, you cannot. And we yell at each other. My wife and I like, you know, like you got your nails done. And she's like, what the fuck, man? It's like $28. Give me a break. I'm like, yeah, but $28 every two weeks, you know? And then I get the calculator out. So this year I'm like, I'm going to be so, I'm going to be so much better about that. And, um, uh, I lost my train of thought, but I'm, I'm not very good with money. I can't remember what I was saying. <laughs> Sorry. Well, no, no. It's, I, I can tell you the last time, I know the last time I balanced my checkbook, I bought tickets to go see Sting in 1987. <laughs> and I, I remember writing it in my checkbook, feeling Dream really Dream of the Blue Turtles, man. Dream that of the Blue it. Turtles. I was at that tour too. It was, that was a good show. That was a great show. Ooh, and it, love, and love that guy, hate that guy, but that show was great. I know, and I think I think I love him and hate him, and um, totally. he was he was my guy. And I, I remember that was the last time I entered something into my checkbook. I wrote Sting tickets. That's so funny. <laughs> I know it was ridiculous. I I felt so responsible, and then that was it. It's really funny because you probably paid like twenty five dollars for those tickets, and you probably thought it was a lot of money. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I was like, wow, I've turned into a big spender at seventeen. Oh you my know. God. So, so here we go. Here, we're talking about time, right? And everything like yeah. that. So 87, I, I know exactly what I look like. My hair was totally spiked up. Uh, <clears throat> I wore baggy pants and like sleeves, like, you know, the, the cuffs down, like four inches past my hand. Like I, that's who I was. I look like Edward Scissorhands, right? Uh, 1987, I wore suspenders. <laughs> <laughs> I wore, what are those called? Bolo ties. You know what I I'm saying? I did too, yeah. That was my shit. Okay. Me too. I was working with a woman who is so smart and fierce. Her name's Caitlin Gerard. She's a, a director, a video director. She directed Drug Rug, my video for Drug Rug. And we were talking about being kids. <laughs> and she's like, yeah. And my, when I was growing up, I was like, you mean like, do you, would you grow up in the 80s or something? I don't know. I, and she's like, yeah. I was born in 1987. I was like, under the ruins of a walled city. <laughs> like, really? Oh my God, Caitlin. That's amazing. But rather than feel old or whatever, like we're friends. Like she, you know, and, and, and it was okay. You know, it was okay. Yeah, I did the bolo tie thing because I saw, I remember I saw um, the guy, you know, I think Mike Mills from REM was wearing one of them. Brian Setzer was wearing one for that knife feels like Jessica. Brian Setzer. I was like, okay. Because I was, a, like you, I was a metal guy. And so I I worked for a metal radio station as a teenager at um, here in, in the Bay Area. And then there was a transition where I went from Ozzy and Y&T into REM, this, and, and Echo and the Bunnymen. There was this weird shift. Yeah. Um, for you, I know you you love the hard rock stuff. When did you transition into other music? Because it feels like you did. Like you sort of, not that you shed your love of that, but yeah. when did you move that direction? Um, I moved it when um, 
let's see. I kind of was, I kind of like was going in and out of it. Um, I think it's when hair metal came. Okay. When hair metal arrived, I was like, I don't like that. Um, even, you know, because I was making music, like I have these interviews um, that uh, from when I was a kid, like I was, I was on TV, like local TV as a kid and they'd interview me and they, you know, and I was like 15 years old or something, 1982, right? So in the interview would be like, so what, what, what is this music you're making with some dumb question, you know, like describe your music to a 15 year old kid, <laughs> something like that. And I was like, yeah, you know, uh, I, I won't imitate my voice, but <laughs> I was like, I'd be like, it's, it's, uh, it's hard rock mixed with pop, like Beatles mixed with Black Sabbath. And I would say that, and then you listen to my music back then, and it sounds like the Buzzcocks, like when I was 15, like it really does. It sounds like the, I've never heard the Buzzcocks. I've never heard any punk rock except uh, maybe The Clash made it to my radio station. Um, the Sex Pistols, I never heard the Sex Pistols, but they were on the news. So like it was Foreigner, Rush, like that kind of corporate stuff. And then my metal was like British metal. So it was like, <clears throat> it was Aussie, but you know, before that it was Sabbath, Priest, Maiden, like that. So I was into that. And that, that there was a band called Riot. Do you remember them? I remember Riot. Wow. Riot was not Quiet Riot, but Riot. They were really good. Like Vandenberg, shit like that. Vandenberg, <laughs> yeah. And Death <laughs> Leopard, of course, the early Death Leopard stuff. Early Death Leopard is the shit. Right. Um, so I was into that. And then, uh, and then, so I was like, oh, I'm going to take that, but make it a little more beatly which is kind of the buzzcocks that's kind of what that is or the replacement even you know but i was 15 and um then hair metal came and i was like oh man they, it's kind of ruined it for me you know i didn't like any of that stuff and it's funny man because it's not like i was a feminist at age 15 but i it always bummed me out like the girls in those videos really <laughs> it really bothered me it really did like as a little kid and you're such a pussy, Mike. Like my friends would give me so much shit for it. Like, but I'd be like, that's, yeah, that's just fucked up. You know, like I wasn't into it. Um, yeah, there, so. The objectification was very clear uh, yeah. in that genre. It became, when it moved towards hair metal, um, because there's not a lot of girls in the bands that you were talking about in terms of like iconography, like yeah. that Def Leppard, the On Through the Night record, the Judas Priest stuff, well, obviously for Priest, there wasn't really, not a lot of girls in those videos. But I mean, Vandenberg, those are just people just playing like yeah. hard rock music. Uh, but then the, the hair metal, it started to objectify women and it did get uncomfortable. It did, didn't it? And, yeah. it, and, and it not only did they objectify them, they copped their stees, as my daughter says. Like they <laughs> dressed like girls. So it was like, yeah. which is great. I love that. But the whole thing was just like, we're just going to take all this and make it macho and, you know, so anyway, yeah, I didn't like it. No, by the time we get to Girls, Girls, Girls with Motley Crue, I mean, it was just yeah. over. It was just it was a, over. It was, it was done. Over. Yeah. But I, I look at something, like I look at those songs and I think, and then I start thinking about Cheap Trick and I think like, to me, like a song like Surrender, I've heard it 8 billion times and it's still Ooh. powerful as ever. It's, and that's, to me, it's like, it's like, that's a hard rock song in many ways. So, so here's an interesting fact. Same producer. The guy who produced Girls, Girls, Girls produced Surrender. What? Tom Werman. Yep. Wow. That's, yeah, that's incredible, dude. Wow. So even though you don't 
you didn't mean to connect those dots is somewhere in your brain that shit connected. Like when, yeah. when you were a kid, you probably saw his name. You know what I mean? For sure. I, I would pour over those things. I, I always think about like why certain things remain like, like for like high and dry is still to me a perfect record, right? Uh, yeah. Cheap trick, those early cheap trick records, perfect records, but yeah. other stuff does age poorly. Yeah. Um, those didn't, those aged great. They do. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I totally agree. I love those records. Yeah. And so do you still get that thrill from that hard rock music that you loved? Can you still put it on and, and, and listen to it? All the time. And I'm still, I'm still um, spread in the gospel of, you know, those early, the first four Sabbath records or cheap, early cheap trick records, you know, um, big star, the early big star stuff, which isn't metal, but you know, I'm just saying like, yeah, I, I love all that stuff still so much. I love it all. Did it teach you something in terms of, of song structure? Like, did it, did it have an effect on you in terms of how you approach the art? It did, but I think, um, like, if I think about, if I think about Aussies, if I think about, like, Blizzard of Oz, um, it, it was, I think it did for me what punk rock did for the generation a little bit older than us. Like, when I heard Ozzy on the radio, I was like, he, he got away with it. Like, you know what I mean? Like he, wow, that guy from Black Sabbath is on like totally on the, on like pop radio. And when I was a kid, it just, it seemed like songs were like Sabbath never seemed, they're not songs per se, you know, it's like really cool lyrics with an incredible singer put to monster riffs in, in all the other stuff that Sabbath is, is, is great for, but not songs, you know, if I play electric funeral on my guitar right now, it's going to be like, it's not going to, I've actually tried to play that acoustic one time and it just didn't work out. <laughs> I stopped midway through. I was like, this isn't working, is it? So, um, yeah, I, I learned, um, you know, from Ozzy, just like how it, there, there's a clear difference between like that sludgy jam rock versus a song, you know, <clears throat> and, but with the same tonality, like the same uh, tones and, and sort of but yeah like the same tapey guitar drum tones and stuff the creamy tones they get um i, I guess i learned that from it there's so much i want to do it's hard to keep track with the list in my mind there's so much i want to do but honey it's not my time there's so much i want to see Sometimes it feels like I've lived a hundred lives There's so much I want to see But honey, it's dark outside Oh, don't be afraid No, don't be afraid We still have time We still have time Don't be afraid
make some room for this thing I found I'm not sure where it belongs It's such a cluttered room So I'm here on the lawn Clawing into the grass A tunnel into the earth Reaching into the past I'm not sure where it belongs It keeps creeping back Just when I think it's gone Now don't be afraid Now don't be afraid We still have time We still have time Don't be afraid Now don't be afraid We still have We still have time There's so much I wanna do Yeah, man. So the bummer is, is I had tickets to see him uh, play at the Cape Cod Coliseum. uh, And my brother got three, three tickets. It was one for me. No, four tickets, one for him, me, my best friend, Todd, three tickets. Sorry. And then uh, Todd's cousin, Benny, his dad and his mom split up and I felt bad for him. And I gave him my ticket. I'm like, I'll just catch him next tour. And he died right after that, man. Uh, so, yeah. I know that sucks. That sucks. Um, when you listen to those records, I mean, he's, he really was no joke. I mean, that guy as a player. Yeah, he's really, and he just, I don't know, you know, like as a kid, yeah, I, I just idolized him, you know, his, he, I, yeah, he was something else, man. I, yeah. I love Eddie Van Halen and I was, a, I mean, he was a God and, you know, and then Randy arrived and it was like, it was like, oh, there's room for other people. Like he, for me, it was it was just the two of those guys. You yeah. know? There's something else you can do besides be like you you could nobody could play those Eddie Van Halen riffs, you know. But like the pentatonic stuff that 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 Randy was doing, like if you spend enough time in the basement, you could kind of pull off the solo to Over the Mountain. But you know, so yeah, it's remarkable to think how young he was too. Um, how young was he? I think he was like 24. Wow. I think I could be wrong, but he was definitely in his early 20s. And when I think about like Van Halen one and two, I think that to me was the first as a kid 
I realized there was an intersectionality between hard rock and pop music because you know doing a kinks doing a kink song and realizing right. that fundamentally that song didn't really change. Yeah. Uh, right. Totally. It just got more muscle, but it, but really it's the same song. And so I realized yeah, that there point. is a relationship between pop music and hard rock. That was where I it dawned on me. And also like in interviews, when Ozzy would give interviews, he'd name the Beatles as his favorite band. Sergeant yeah. Pepper as his favorite record. And there, there I am like, you know, looking, staring at the cover of Diary of a Madman. And he's, you know, I love monsters and stuff. And he's dressed like a monster and he's pushing all these buttons. And then he pushes the Beatle button. And I'm like, oh my God, send me over the top. <laughs> yeah, it's, I know it's crazy. And it's interesting, we're talking about the past and, um, I know that you, I read your, like, I follow you on Instagram, by the way, you're a great follow. The stuff you write is so great. Um, you. And your, your past as a child, a child musician, like a kid, like a teen musician, um, is not well documented in terms of out, being out there, the, but you've documented it. But yeah. it sounds to me like your father, who I know you lost really early, was like a super supporter of your, of your art. And that, that, that always just moves me. I think it was so fucking cool that he was really had your back. Well, what it was, was this, um, you know, I was the youngest of three and uh, 19, you know, born in 66. So it's like the seventies, as you know, you grew up in the seventies, man, you know, that was a dark time to be a, <laughs> a little kid, yeah. but like, um, <clears throat> yeah. And I, I had trouble getting my dad's attention. So he didn't, he sort of ignored me. Uh, because I was very self-sufficient and I had a rich inner life. So like you could leave me with um, my toys, you know, like my Planet of the Ape dolls and I could spend hours just like building an ape village or whatever and just playing with them or like my, you know, wacky packs or whatever. Like I, I was self-sufficient. I'd play in the backyard and I, I see kind of ignored me. You know, and I think in he was at that age, he was uh, he was young when he had me, he was in his 40s uh, or late 30s or something. And he, yeah, I think he was just sort of like, all right, I'm going to figure my own shit out. And I'm not sure what he was doing, to be honest with you, which is one of the real tragedies of losing a parent young is you really don't, like, who was he? I don't even really know, you know. Anyway, yeah. um, but I do remember that I had trouble getting his attention. Then I picked up the guitar. And then once I picked the guitar up, and started writing songs, uh, that wasn't enough. But once, like the news, like I became newsworthy for some reason. Um, and what I mean by that is, um, I guess the first time the news, uh, yeah, it, there was a there was a there was a TV show called Super Kids, and it was a local, it was a regional show, and. Um, I don't know how it happened. I, I, my mom's dead too. So I, I, I don't, I can't, I'm not sure how it happened. I would ask her, but somehow I ended up on that show when I was like 14. And, um, and it was, you know, in the show, they came to the house and it was people with cameras and young, creative, cool people at my house in the suburbs. And my dad kind of like vibed on it. I was like, wow, my kid's getting all this weird attention. And I'm like, I'm wearing a Randy Rhodes shirt in the, in the um, in the show, and I'm like, my hair's cut like Randy's, and it's funny, man. But um, I think that I got all this attention from the press um, that 
my dad started to pay attention to me. And then when he did, he started to, he, he bought me stuff, you know, he bought me guitars and it was really, really helpful. And, um, and I, and it, I resented him because I was of the age where you resent your parent, you know? Um, but then he died before I could reconcile that, which blows because I really don't know who he was or what was going on. I found a tape because, um, I have like, like there's a stack of cassette tapes back there where, um, of music <clears throat> from when I was a kid, because I've recently just been, um, um, because of my Instagram posts, my super kid Insta Instagram posts, I've been going back and listening to some of the music to see if any of it is like of interest to people, you know? Um, and I found a, uh, recording of my dad, uh, when, and, uh, yeah, it's weird. He's talking on this cassette and I don't, I just don't recognize his voice, you know? Oh. Yeah, it's wild. So it's crazy, man. Do, does it make you think in terms of with your own daughters and thinking about like, you know, thinking about a couple of songs on the record where, which is directed towards them. <clears throat> do you, does it make you think about how to show up for them in their creative endeavors as well? Yeah, it really does. It really does. And, you know, I don't push them to do um, anything specific. Like, you should take piano lessons. No, you must. Um, that never works out. What I do is say, <laughs> I'll say, you need to take piano lessons. And then they try it. And it's, if it's the wrong teacher, it's so boring. You know, so I'll try and find another teacher. And, um, and then sometimes I'll like bribe them. I'll give you $20 to, to just do it, <laughs> just do it. And I, and they both have incredible ears. And so, you know, they don't have to read the music. They just ape what they hear, but whatever. Yeah. It's, I, I try not to force that stuff on them, but um, I try and I definitely support anything they do creatively for sure. You know, you seemed like you, you knew what you liked. You liked, you liked monsters, you liked music. You could disappear into those worlds. Have your daughters figured out what they like and what they're good at? Are you starting to see them, independent of you, start doing things like drawing or things you didn't t pay them $20 to do? Like Yeah, yeah. Like, my, you know, Isabel is so academic, you know, and that was never my thing. Um, and she's really good at it. And I see her dig in and she's articulate in these in class because now it's one cool thing about someone her age having school at home is I get to eavesdrop on her classes and like those are real classes and she goes to a private school which like you know it's 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 really really good schooling for her and um so yeah listening to her speak up in class just like wow like I was stoned all through high school <laughs> you know what I mean <laughs> and so like to, just to hear her dude I'm just so proud of her so like that's her thing I think she's going to be so in something in the academic world, I think. I don't know. And JoJo's eight, so, um, and she, like me, has a real active imagination and, and a, a rich inner life. And I'm just letting her figure her thing out. I'm, yeah, not sure yet. What do you think it was in terms of, because I love monsters too. What do you think the whole, the whole horror, the lure of horror and that kind of stuff when we were kids? Um, and I see you in the video with the, with the Mike Myers, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Michael Myers the following your daughter around she's, as she's uh, roller skating. What do you think the allure was of that stuff? Because I went to that immediately. That was, my, that was a great place for me too. Yeah. 
Isn't it wild? Yeah, um, I think we, our generation, caught the third wave of monster, the monster craze. Because, um, you know, Universal sold the rights to all those monster movies. Um, to They syndicated them on TVs and they chopped up the movies and Creature Feature happened. Oh, yeah. Um, so we saw all that stuff. I think, you know, it's funny. I've thought a lot about it because... I think I love the idea of the monsters and the stuff that came that comes with the monsters more than I love the movies. Like the movies are okay. <laughs> it's yeah. more the iconography and uh, the symbolism of the mon the monsters. And there's a book that came out in the early 2000s, I think, or or, or late 1990s by this guy David Skall S K A A L, and it's called Monster Show. And in it it's like a dissertation on the sexuality that draws us to monsters and all sorts of shit. That's fascinating. Um, and it's kind of cool. It kind of fueled that, that idea that it was probably like this prepubescent, you know, attraction, um, some way to express or to investigate sexuality or something. But I don't know. That's also a load of shit. It's actually, it's just, that stuff just looks so cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It looks cool. And also the idea of, I mean, I, I always say I've never really felt like I belonged anywhere and I like yeah. how monsters don't belong anywhere, but they don't give a fuck. Like, right. Right. That's exactly right. And it's like, that's the whole idea of the, of the Wolfman too. Is like, in it, for the cover of God Muffin, I'm dressed as, I'm the Wolfman, you know, cause I'm going through a transformation and like, I can't help it. And you know, and I kind of just want to die. You know what I mean? Like the whole thing about the Wolfman is like, he's trying to die because he keeps right. killing everybody else. I don't want to die literally. I'm just saying I want this old part of me to die. Like, and I don't mean the old part, like the gray haired, you know, saggy flesh part of me. I mean, the, I mean the part of me that's, that's, that's on that slippery slope that we talked about at the top of the hour, which was like, you know, the, the 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 part of me that's in danger of of blending in and becoming part of the massive jello that's the cons part of this consumption population like this consumer population that you know I want that part of me to die and I just want to kind of you know become a, just a, a a contributing member of like the universe you know like <laughs> and and that's kind of what Larry Talbot was looking to do you know um, so. But it turns out Lon Chaney Jr. was a real asshole. I don't know if you know about that. I've heard, I've heard the stories. <laughs> like Karina Longworth has that incredible podcast. You must remember this. And, and she talks about how like he was just a raging drunk and like so mean to women and stuff. So it's, it you know, being a monster fan and like really opening the hood on all the stuff. I, I prefer not to. I prefer to just like play with my dolls in the monster room. <laughs> I know because sometimes if like someone said to me, you know, we were talking about the idea of the art of monstrous men, you know, like I, I, I grew up, my sense of humor is shaped by those Woody Allen movies, but you know, yeah. that's yeah. an uncomfortable thing. Um, yeah. my, my bookshelf would be empty if I just got rid of people based on faulty morality and, right. you know, I'd have, yeah. I'd have two CDs left and I'd have, um, so it, so it's difficult in terms of like how much of the hood do you want to pop open? That's tricky. Very, very tricky. And erasure is tricky. And I don't have a, a concrete answer. I just kind of follow 
I follow, you know, really my, my spirit. And I just like, does that, that feels wrong. And then I'm just going to give that a break for a little while. This somehow doesn't feel as wrong as everyone's saying. So I can still, you know, keep my eyes on this. So it's tricky, right? It is tricky. I, I think about you also in terms of like, to me, to my ear, I'll hear your music. I'll go, that just sounds perfect to me. Oh, when man. you, when you, like, you've written so many perfect songs. I, I, I maintain you've never written a bad song. Um, mm. But when you write a song and you feel that you've like, just like, take a, a song like, um, what's that, that one from the library of uh, California girls? Uh, oh yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Take, just, to, or, or can or canned hunt, like take, yeah. take a song like that. I would think like if I was a musician and I wrote those songs, I would go, well, I'm done. <laughs> nobody, nobody can mess with me. Do you ever feel like, okay, I've, I've nailed it. I can, I can rest for a while. Or do you always feel I got to do it again. I got to do it again. I got to do it again. I always thank, thank you very much for that, by the way. Um, and those are some old songs and um, very uh, important songs that you picked out there because um, California Girl is a song that's written as a craftsman, like like um, like a carpenter might see a beautiful piece of wood. My friend Wiley, who plays bass in that band Dawes, like he'll look at a piece of wood because he's also an artisan. Like he creates, he makes guitars and cool shit out of wood and metal. And he'll see a piece of material and he'll envision something. And with California Girl, I had the concept first and I just become friends with Adam Schlesinger, who we talked about earlier um, and Chris Collingwood. And they were writing songs that were very crafty. It was before Fountains of Wayne. And um, in my songs were more uh, personal as they always are. And I was California girl was like my hand, my try at doing like a crafty song. So it was written from the, the 5% of my brain that I'm in control of. Whereas Canned Hunt was written while my first wife, Kim, who, who, who died, which that's a whole other thing. But she was next to me and it was in the 90s and she was watching Seinfeld. And even back then I was like, fuck Seinfeld, fuck pop culture. You know what I mean? I just couldn't do it. So I'd be sitting on the couch with my journal writing while she was watching TV or, I mean, she was a smart amazing person who just wanted a break watch a little sitcom and I, I love Seinfeld as much as the next person but whatever I was kind of a jerk but I wrote Can't Hunt in a fit of stream consciousness automatic writing Jackie could eat bad ice cream cone she swallowed so fast he followed her home bad bad boy there's a wife somewhere that you employ with a steel plate the back of her head something about a hunting accident watch her squirm like a cat in a brook or a hook through a worm trapped inside a car trunk carry me home dead drunk set up for the can hunt of cowardice is blind i only see the strong surviving with needles in their eyes that was the first song. It was Canned Hunt. It was the first song that I was like, and I wrote it about her family. <laughs> I wrote it about her dad and her mom because Kim was sort of, in my mind, like like an animal at a canned hunt. Like she's just like trapped, you know? Yeah. She's just an easy target. So um, 
and it was so abstract and no one really knew what it was about and I could sing it and I could express myself without anybody knowing what it was about. Whereas California Girl was a direct story about a certain thing and sure it was an analogy or a metaphor you could attach to something and wear it like a suit, you know, and walk around and say, this is me, but two completely different styles of songwriting. So it's interesting you bring those up and I've spent a lifetime, a lifetime doing both and measuring like, is this one good? Like, you know, in trying to figure out, like Adam was so good at the 5% of his brain, like logical, hey Julie, incredible song, but written, not but, there's no buts, incredible song written as a craftsman. Yeah. Chris, that's what's so cool about that particular band, Fountains of Wayne, is that Chris was more the, the other, the, you know, 95% of his brain where it's all stream of consciousness, you know? And um, so anyway, I've, I've sort of gone back and forth with that. And I've, I haven't written my favorite song yet. And I'm still searching because, you know, yeah, I, 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 it's not like I get sick of my songs. I just, it's like, you know, I get very, very um, opinionated about them, you know? And so, yeah, I haven't, I haven't, Every once in a while, my own song will move me a little bit, but um, it's usually in a time of weakness. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting to hear you say that you haven't written your favorite song because you've written some of my favorite songs. And I wonder if you, I wonder if you feel when you look at your body of work that you're getting closer. I mean, do you feel, (laughs) do you feel you're getting closer to that favorite song? That's a great question. I, I think I'm getting closer to to finding my voice, not my singing voice, but like my voice, like who is Mike? Like if you listen to the early candy butchers, my voice is pretty high and it's, it's not, and I, I'd gone through puberty. It's not like, you know, it's, it's, my voice was high. I was listening to a lot of Glenn Tilbrook, whose voice was high, a lot of Neil Young, who sings really high, uh, in a lot of solo McCartney in the eighties where he, he kind of sang really high, you know? Like, you know, it's a tug of war, like stuff like that. Yeah. So I sing up there, you know, and my friend Jonathan Daniel calls it my, uh, my 90s mic, the 90s mic voice, you know. <laughs> and now I sing lower and it's more resonant. It's more like, um, <laughs> you know, and it's not me trying to like toughen up or anything like that I'm, at all. I'm just trying to find what resonates. For instance, you know, uh, here. So like Cal- uh, like uh, Ordinary Girl, you know, like that's the key, right? Ordinary Girl. That, that's still kind of high, but Ordinary Girl. Like it's more relaxed. But, you know, I think I wrote it up here. Ordinary Girl. Sounds like the candy butchers. There's a life planned out for you. You know what I mean? Totally, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. The candy butchers would swing it like ordinary girl. There's a life planned out for you by your parents, by your school, but they don't know anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. There's and and all three are so different. All different in like I just was like, I'm gonna move the capo down here and just be like like find a different place in my diaphragm, a different way to push air, 
to make it more resonant because the resonance to me feels more connective. So yeah, that's kind of, I think as I get older and I, um, and I continue to write songs, I'm getting better at finding my voice, I hope. I, it feels like I am. I put Adam and Glenn Tilbrook together in terms of, in terms of craftsmen. I, I don't know if it gets better. I mean, to me, it's like, that's on the level of the Beatles. Yeah. I, I mean, Adam's ridiculous and, yeah. and um, just so unreasonably good. And Tilbrook, it's like, I listened to some of the deep cuts on Squeeze albums and I'm like, yeah. why were these not like international hits? I know, I love, I love that record, Cool for Cats, especially. <laughs> I just love that song. Yeah, he was, he was incredible. Yeah. Um, in terms of, you know, one last question about the past. I, being a, I was a metal DJ at a radio station that had our, we were, our wattage was small, but our antenna was located in a really good place. Yeah. So we were competing with major market stations as a 15 year old. So I got a little bit, not famous, but well known in the area. Yeah. But, but my shtick was I'm a teenager. Right. So I kept, I would say things like blah, 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 blah. I talked to my ex-wife. Like it was like the joke was like, cause I'm so young. Yeah. I had a really difficult time. It took me about 20 years of struggle to find my voice as someone yeah. behind a microphone who wasn't a kid. Like, it, right. and, and it was really like a daily thing where I, I literally turned the mic off for 20 years. Wow. And I finally found my voice and my voice was a lower voice. And my voice was right. not trying to land the zingers and lines and be a funny guy, but actually have real conversations. And um, I found it. And when I found it, I felt immense relief. But it's those so 20 good. years that's were tough. so good to hear. It, that's real shit. It's real shit. But, but did you, it sounds like you were able to transition in a smoother way than I was able to. Is that? No, I don't think so. I don't no? think so. I think I went through a real, a chunk of time where it was just like, what? Like, I can't listen to those records, you know? Um, but then I just, it's it, moving to LA, like leaving New York, moving to LA and meeting a new, a fresh, fresh faces out here and being welcomed by the music scene here, which is, you know, of the singer songwriter scene in LA is it's incredible. It's, it's, I don't know if it's ever stopped being incredible. I, I don't, I don't know. Cause I've, I've only been here for like 10 years or so, but it's incredible, man. It's just really welcoming every, there's room for everybody to do their thing, you know? And so I, so then it, the challenge was what's your thing, dude, what are you doing? Like, what is your thing? Just do it. So I think that's what you're talking about. Finding your voice is just like, Lick, love it or hate it, this is who I am. Love it or hate it. Like, I'm not this guy, I'm this guy. Just be who you are and you'll find your people, you know? And I, and I think, and then, then comes the task of the measuring stick of success and readjusting that, you know? Um, and finding the comedy in who you were in who you're about to become, the, the drama in the whole thing. It's so dramatic. And going back to that glass of plates, it's so messy. It's so messy, you know? Yeah. And it's abstract and it's chaotic. But is, if you can just take a deep breath and find your resonance and just say what you're thinking, you know? Not what you think you're thinking. <laughs> right, not what you think you're thinking. Also, how you're observed. I talked to Dan Byrne. Oh, and one of the best, one of the deepest people I know. He's, he is so great. And he, 
talked about you like he said you're like basically i'm paraphrasing but he kind of said you're the dean like you're the, you're the man like you are <laughs> like in terms of craftsmen he talked about you as um it's interesting how you observe yourself and how he observes you and he he just he was just so um he's just he says he's in awe of of how you create songs i feel the same way and it's and we're not saying that out of we're saying that for real because he used to live two houses down from me I was the luckiest guy in, in Los Angeles. And literally he'd walk down the street with his guitar and be like, can I just sing you something? I'm like, yeah. And he'd sing me this idea and I'd comment. And then I do the same thing to him. Like we just walk back and forth. And then we wrote all those songs for Walk Hard and Get Him to the Greek. And, um, and it was just, it was the best time. It was when he lived here. But yeah, he's, he as a songwriter, he is the freest, the freest lyricist I've ever worked with. So when you're sitting down, a lot of people, <clears throat> I shouldn't say it that way. There's a, there's a danger when you're sitting down to collaborate. The danger is the word, I don't know, or the danger is the thought like, I think that sounds like this or that. Like, don't, you know, like Dan Wilson says, who's another master at this stuff, just like, always say yes. When you're collaborating with someone, just say yes. And it's like it's like um, improvisation, like improv theater. It's the answer is always yes, and you know what I mean. And Dan really was the first guy to teach me that. And I don't even think he was trying to be a teacher, but he taught me that. Um, and he also taught me that my crazy ass, stupid stream of consciousness, like comedian voice. There's a lot of lyrics in there. Like we would drive around LA, like just smoking a joint, like going from donut shop to donut shop, like writing lyrics for Dewey Cox. And I'd just be like singing in a funny voice and he'd be laughing, just like writing down the lyrics, you know? And so, yeah, he's, he's, he is the closest to a genius I've ever met. He's unbelievable. He taught me so much about writing uh, listening to him and going like, oh, you can put all those things in a three-minute pop song. Or you can put like a psychologist and a, and uh, you know, uh, and an olive and uh, like anything goes in there. Um, and that's where pop music is so interesting because I take someone like Marshall Crenshaw, who is another craftsman, who yeah. that wouldn't work. Those kinds of images and those kinds of tangential things wouldn't work in a Crenshaw song, but they work in a Dan Byrne song. And they're doing a, a similar kind of thing, but it's totally yes. different. Yes, completely, completely. So I don't know. I mean, he, he just seems like, Dan seems like he'll let anything in and it works for him, it just works. It just works. It just works. And if it doesn't work, he crumples it up and he starts another one. Like for every one, for every great song he has, there's 12 on the cutting room floor that he wrote to get to that one. And that's another thing that he taught me is just how to be, fearless about your, your, your output. Like there's more in there. There's always more. Maybe not right the second. Let's go play tennis. I'm like, I don't want to play tennis. Come on, I'll teach you. Dan, I don't want to play tennis. He's like, it'll be good. It'll get the blood going. I'm like, no, you're going to blow out my knee. I don't want to play tennis. <laughs> but then we'll go down and play tennis and, you know, he, he you know, we'll come up with some different ideas or something. So yeah, he's great. Do you finish ideas that you know, like if you're working on a song and you go, this isn't going to be a, a good one. I'm not going to keep this one. Do you finish it anyway? Is that a good thing to do? Sometimes I'll do that as a challenge, almost like when you don't want to go to the gym 
or I don't go to the gym, but like, if you don't want to stretch or something, but then you're like, I'm just going to do it just to prove to myself I'm not an idiot. Um, <laughs> so sometimes I'll do that with songs. Yeah, I'll finish it just to prove that like I can, but then I'll throw it away. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're, you're one of my favorite guys and I've wanted to talk to you for about 25 years. So I'm, I'm glad we did this. Yeah, me too, man. I really appreciate it, Alex. It, I, it's, I've listened to a bunch of your podcasts just in, to prepare for this, just to see what you're up to. And it, you give such a great interview. And this was, this was a blast. I really appreciate the time. Well, thanks, man. And next time you're in the Bay Area, let's get a cup of coffee. For sure. And we'll add one more glass plate to that stack of glass plates. Done. You got it, man. Hey, I love oh, the record. Yeah. And I'm, I'm so excited. And thank you again for your time. Thanks so much, Alex. We'll talk later. All right, brother. Okay, bye-bye. Look, I don't want to pick favorites, but that was one of my favorite conversations I've ever had with anybody, <laughs> podcast or whatever, real life. That was one of the uh, most satisfying chats uh, I've ever had. That was a great one. I really enjoyed that. Mike Viola. Love that guy. Love the album. God Muffin. Go get it. It'll save your year. 2020 has been a beast, but God Muffin is going to save the day. MikeViola.com is where you need to go to get that album. And uh, you know what? He has cool t-shirts. There's a, uh, a wolfman on one of the shirts. It's like a wolfman diner kind of thing. Order that for you and your family. Get one for everybody. You know, for Christmas. Because what says Christmas more than a family in matching werewolf diner shirts? I think that's, that's the move. Everyone in the neighborhood will think you're cool. So uh, go do that. AlexGreenOnline.com is my website. You can also follow me on Twitter at Embers Editor or follow me on Instagram at Embers Podcast or just email me. Editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. I will answer you. I promise. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use. Subscribe. Tell a friend. Buy them a werewolf shirt. Leave a nice comment, and uh, thank you in advance for uh, spreading the word about our podcast. We really appreciate it. Go to bombshellradio.com, find out what makes us tick, and uh, you will find we're on 365 days a year, seven days a week. You know the hour breakdown, 24. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> Let's close the show with a fuller listen to Mike Viola's new song, Ordinary Girl. Enjoy it. And thank you, as always, for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast only right here on Bombshell Radio. See you.
Chapter Bird 5. 